You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm excited today to talk to Liz Harrison on the topic of the latest in go-to-market. Liz, welcome to the show. Wonderful, Asher. I'm excited to be here. I know this took us a little bit of time to get us to this point, but we were it really did. saving the time with you because the new year has kicked off. Everything that Demandbase does is all going to be about go-to-market. And so, again, I'm really excited because of the content that we're going to cover today. But before we do that, can you help our audience get to know a little bit about you and how you got to where you are? Absolutely. So by title, I'm a partner at McKinsey in our marketing and sales practice But who I am, first and foremost, is a mom. I have a toddler who is absolutely the the center of our world, a couple of rescue dogs, a loving husband based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and family is really core to to who I am. At McKinsey, though, I, I spend all of my time on the topic of commercial growth, which absolutely involves helping companies figure out how do I go to market? Do I invest in e commerce? Do I launch a hybrid sales team? So that's what I do. Globally, I also lead what's called our B2B Pulse. And since 2016, we've been investing quite heavily to understand how B2B customers want to interact with suppliers, not only the channels they want to use, but the must-dos from a supplier perspective to drive loyalty. And our timing, Asher, I know this was delayed a bit, is actually really perfect because we just finished another round of research. So really excited in our conversation to share some of those lessons learned with you. I always say everything happens for some good reason, and this is a great reason. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the concept of just go-to-market, right? And I'll give my definition, and then you give yours, right? But like when somebody says go-to-market, I just think of sales, marketing, customer success, and biz dev, and those are like the four pillars, right? But lately, I've thought, and I've said this out publicly as well, is go-to-market leaders really need to be celebrated the same way that product and engineering leaders are celebrated too, because it's really, really hard. And a successful go-to-market leaders have so much pressure on them, the same way that other executives have too. But it's not as simple as just like hiring 17 people and putting them to to practice, uh, to work and stuff like that. But it's really trying to understand the customer journey. And and so things have gotten complicated. So please, whoever in the audience, if you know a go-to-market leader, that is trying really, really hard, please celebrate them, please recognize them because they don't get that enough, right? So, but we'd love to hear your definition of go-to-market, list. Absolutely. I think given the complexity of sales and marketing today, and I'll give you a specific data point. Today, a typical B2B customer interacts with a supplier through 10 or more channels. A few years back, it was half of that. So just by nature alone, the options across their journey have doubled in complexity. And so as I think about go-to-market, I think about the incredibly complex process of orchestrating a journey. Not only what channels, is it a chat? Is it worth an in-person visit? Should it be video? But also the messaging. What content should be shown? To what extent should it be personalized? And when should the the seller or the marketer completely back out and have the customer do things on their own and be self-service? So go-to-market and me is best illustrated by this concept of complex journey orchestration 
from initial consideration through to purchase and then ultimately ideally becoming a loyal customer. I think the other thing I'll add, and just I love your comment about go-to-market leaders being celebrated, the stakes are higher than they ever have been before. We know that especially for B2B decision makers across industry, loyalty is on the decline. The percent of companies that evaluate suppliers every quarter and every year is we've never seen higher numbers. And we know that there are seemingly small things that may trigger them to think about a supplier. So for example, 80% of B2B customers tell us that they will actively look for another supplier if that supplier does not offer a seamless experience across channels, which ties back to my point. The go-to-market orchestrator is most critical. If that experience shifting among your 10 channels is not seamless, your customer will leave you. So the stakes are incredibly high. Yep. I would also say that just to give folks an idea, the go-to-market leader, even though most of them come from sales and some of them come from marketing, we are starting to see the trend that a few of them are coming from the land of partnerships and biz dev, and we rarely see people from customer success. Like our CRO, Alison Metcalf, actually came from, from customer success, which is fantastic to see. The go-to-market leader is not just a person just responsible for the number, right? Like that's maybe their, their directive, but they should be viewed as what you just said, like the orchestrator of the customer journey and viewed as the person who makes stuff happen Absolutely. versus just the person responsible for this. And they're like, what have you done for me now? Right? Because that annoys them. Right? So, okay, let's talk about your pulse report. Like that caught my curiosity. And so um, I would love to get some nuggets out of, uh, out of the latest one. Absolutely. So, so just as context for all, since 2016, we have been surveying thousands of what we call B2B decision makers across the globe. So B2B decision maker is someone who works for an organization and could decide on how many semi-trucks they want to buy to what cloud service provider they want to use. So across products and services, they're just a decision maker. And so they tell us how they want to interact with a supplier and what matters to them. And so we just ran our latest round of research, and, and I'm going to call out some big changes from last time, as well as some universal truths that no matter how much we try to break, we just can't. So a few big changes. The willingness to spend big online has grown significantly for the first time since the onset of COVID. So we now have an incredibly high, kind of over a third percent of B2B customers that are willing to spend over half a million and 15% that are willing to spend a million. And this is really important to call out because this is not sitting side by side in person with your trusted sales rep. This is you on your own in front of a computer spending a million dollars in a single transaction. Linked to that, we are now seeing that from the B2B company side, e-commerce is now viewed as the single most important channel on a few dimensions. One, it is the single most used route to market, even surpassing in-person. And I'll talk about some of the trends we saw throughout COVID. But as you look across B2B companies, e-commerce is the single most common channel. We are also seeing that for the first time ever, both customers and suppliers, e-commerce is actually the most efficient. As I think about where I get my biggest bang for the buck, e-commerce is it. The third piece is, is customers are really showing us that they're voting with their dollars. E-commerce and in-person are now for the first time ever tied for the single biggest driver of revenue. Again, big movements as it comes to, to e-commerce. The third big change I will call out is this 
surge in B2B customers saying the personal touch still matters. So while I said all of those great things about e-commerce, I want to really reinforce that the seller is not going away anytime soon. In-person still absolutely matters, and it's a part of the equation. We have tested uh, what channel customers want to use at different stages of the journey way back since 2016, and what has emerged is this rule of thirds. Regardless of the stage of journey that you're in, a third of the time customers want in-person, a third of the time they want remote, and a third of the time they want self-service. And our latest research would say that This in-person is incredibly important because B2B customers see it as a sense of how much they're valued. When a supplier makes effort to visit them in person, they feel special. And the deeper the relationship they have with their supplier, they're more likely to want that in-person visit, but they don't want it all the time. So this rule of third still holds and the personal touch still matters, even though we're seeing all of these increases in e-commerce. And so as I take a step back from all of these changes, the universal truths that have really been cemented is that B2B sales and B2B go-to-market is omni-channel. 100%, it just is, it is never going to be a single channel, a single digital platform, or a single route to market will solve it. Your B2B customers want at least you know, three main ways to interact with you throughout the journey which adds to our first point around the complexity of these go-to-market orchestrators. Like they have to do it all in order to meet customer needs. Super. And have you picked up any trends? They may not be in the survey. I'm just, I'm just, as I yeah. look at my own data points from the last like year and a half, have you picked up any trends on say communities and the role that communities are playing in B2B buying? Cause like in my own personal network, like, I feel like I get invited to a new community every single day. And when I look at my Slack channels, I think my Slack line is like 37 channels long because there's just things have just exploded. Yeah. I had a couple of observations, not, not all from our research, but also from the organizations that I have a chance to work with. I think communities at work, personal interests outside of work are more important than ever. As you know, hybrid work and a default to virtual is the norm. People want that personal touch and communities provide that in a, in a virtual world. I also think as we think about one of the core issues that at least the organizations I work with tend to have, talent retention is so hard these days. And especially, again, as you think about finding these go-to-market orchestrators, they are to some extent unicorns that are incredibly hard to find, incredibly hard to recruit. And once you do, you need to retain them. And a critical you know, way to retain them is to make them feel part of a community. So I think there's there's a role there as well. We did not see in our research, though, that online communities, for example, jumped significantly in terms of a source of research when making a buying decision. So I can't tell you that the data would say this channel is more important than ever before. I think communities have become less of a source potentially for driving the purchase decision and more as a source of personal renewal, personal energy. And that's the role that they tend to play. I love how you eloquently just like package that. It's super cool. And <laughs> I try. <laughs> as you were saying it, I was just thinking about like, well, what do I get from that community, right? Like, have I bought something? No. But would I kill my subscription? Absolutely not. Because all my... It plays a real value. My closed network of trusted people 
that whose opinions I value are all there, right? And the, the FOMO-based communities where people don't get to get in and there's a proper onboarding team on the other side that like brings you in and matches you with the right people. Like I really, really enjoy that. And I'm sure other people do too, because it's just so hard, like with all the stop, start, stop, start with COVID going on, it's just so hard to even get out to say like, well, who's out there and what are they working on, right? Like we would do that at trade shows or at industry events and we can't do that anymore. Yeah. It's a great point. There is one link I'll make, though, to the research and this concept of communities as is linked to purchase decisions. So we were trying to tease apart different types of e-commerce. Is it, you know, you can buy something from a supplier themselves. I can buy something on a supplier's website and it's behind a paywall, for example, or I can go to a third party marketplace, which I'm going to call that as a, there's a lot of community aspects to marketplaces. Yep. And as we ask customers, what are you most comfortable with? The rank order from most comfortable to least comfortable is as follows. Supplier behind a paywall, marketplace, really close, neck and neck, almost number one. And then in somewhat distant third place was supplier website behind a paywall. And this shocked me. I think I had at least had kind of this myth in my head to say that a B2B customer is going to always prefer the branded supplier site, buy directly from the, from the supplier because that's yes. what I trust. Yes. But they're actually almost equally trust and more comfortable with the marketplace because I think it provides those community aspects. Reviews can be more independent. I have the option to compare different products. You know, marketplaces often have a better user experiences to some extent because that's their business. And so I think there is a real strategic decision for B2B suppliers to make to say, do I build it on my own? Is it worth kind of the brand presence to go direct through online? Or is my better option, almost just as good from a trust and usability perspective, to explore marketplace? And I think that the benefits of the community, to me, are the reason behind that, the reason why marketplaces are kind of catching up to that branded experience. Super. So let's go to the traditional go-to-market and unpack some of the things that you just talked about, right? So as far as marketing and sales are concerned, right, and the use of data, because there's like tons of data companies that just landed on the map, right? Like nobody cared about data companies. And then bam, all of a sudden, like every company wants to be a data company. And then now it feels like whatever was happening 10 years ago with companies like Infer and, you know, all the predictive analytics companies, like that's coming back again because the the artificial intelligence technology is, has caught up as well. So do you have any viewpoints or observations that you can share with us around just the effective use of data to power go-to-market and what are people saying? Absolutely. There are kind of three big trends that I would say are emerging. And I promise I'm not trying to deliberately create lists of three, which I know consultants tend to do. It just, I think there are three. The first is linked again to this concept of orchestration. Data can help tell the sales rep when it's worth the in-person visit or when it can be VC or when, in fact, they should just say, hey, use our website. So I think there is a real data-informed choice of mode of interaction that can happen. The second application that I'm seeing is around personalization of content or personalized marketing. What we do know is that B2B suppliers that personalize their content on multiple dimensions, not just say, hey, Asher, here's an email to you but it's yep. relevant to where you are in your buying journey to the maturity of your organization that they actually outgrow their peers. So we've been able to link above market share growth and revenue to personalization in marketing. And there's a direct link. 
And so again, data can help inform what dimensions you personalize on and when it really matters because personalization costs money. It requires data infrastructure. That's a critical piece of it. The third thing that I would add is may sound odd, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is a struggle for a lot of organizations. Data can help with change management and reduction in channel conflict. So what we've seen in our research and what I just hear so loudly and clearly in the organizations I work with is now more than ever, e-commerce and field sellers and inside sellers are at odds. There is channel conflict because they, your traditional field seller says, hey, e-commerce takes from my commissions and so therefore it is bad. And so I really think data can play a big role in providing that transparency and showing how a sales rep equipped with digital, equipped with remote is actually more effective and can frankly earn more money than not. And that can help overcome what is one of the biggest challenges besides talent, which is your core go-to-market channels are at odds and in conflict with each other. So this is, and this may, may sound a little too transparent, right? But Shoot. every time I hear this, right, <laughs> that, that people are just like, they find conflict or at odds at, at, the, at this stuff, right? To me, it's like, if a business had figured out that there was an automated way of bringing customers in, then it is the business's responsibility to figure out how they can grow that customer. And sellers should become amazing account managers. And it's not like you'll get paid less because lifetime value of a customer, ASP, like all these other metrics are really, really important to businesses and the longevity of businesses, right? So like you sell a deal and it, it get paid and it's done. That's like a different world, right? Like we are in a very different world around, around earning the customer because it takes so much time and effort. And then it's so... If you're, I'll say this out loudly, like if you're a part of a business where you're extremely blessed with lots of inbound coming in, I would get the least expensive resource to onboard the customer and then put your resources on like making the customer successful and expanding the account. And that to me is that, that flywheel and the recurring revenue hit from that, that you'll experience, like it'll boost the entire company. And so this is, at least in my mind, it's a non-issue. It's not a non-issue because sales reps have huge amounts of pride in the fact that they can own the relationship. Yes. And because they are people and because many of the most successful sellers out there, especially as we think about outside of tech and financial services and B2B, we think about big industrial, big agriculture players. They're old school sales reps. Yes. yes. And there is pride in end-to-end -end ownership. And that's at the heart of the issue. Even though I talk about this rule of thirds, regardless of if it's research, purchase, or repurchase, a third of the time customers want in-person, a third of the time they want remote, and a third of the time they want fully self-service, as you were saying, automated. Yep. The pendulum does swing more to in-person or more to remote where you still need a sales rep. You can't automate it when it is complex or high value. So the higher, closer I get to the million and above mark, the more complex and complexity is, you know, it's highly configured, really custom. It goes closer to 40% want in person than not. So again, the rule of thirds isn't completely broken, but it itches more towards in person. And so while I am absolutely for if there are opportunities to streamline and drive self-service, yes, I do not believe it can ever be 100% of your option because of this rule of thirds. Yep, and I yep. also think that because of the talent issue that we mentioned, organizations can't be, you know, they can't be overly protective of their sales team, but they have to recognize that they are people with pride and that this has been, you know, the past two years have been some of the most biggest shocks of their system in terms of the ways they're working. And they need to be aware of that. Super. I'm, I'm so glad you rounded that out. 
Now, let's talk about talent management, right? And specifically around executives and like coaching executives and bringing them to believe and become an executive because it's a very, very daunting, daunting experience. Even though everybody says, hey, can you just make me a VP? It'll be like the best thing ever, right? But then they actually get into the role and they realize, well, it's maybe not the best thing ever. And you actually have to learn how to be an executive and perform as an executive and sustain yourself as an executive, right? And so would love to get your observations on that. It's a really good and tricky question. And I'm going to take, I guess, my view informed by the the super executives, I'll call them, that I have the opportunity to to work with. And the things that I have observed that make great executives and also those, you know, VPs that have transitioned to SVP and EVP, and I've seen them excel along that transition, Mm -hmm. there are a few things that stand out. I'm not going to list three. I'll I'll put my list to, to two this time. The first is what I would call sustainable speed. And I'm very deliberately using that language. Leaders in this environment, especially leaders in sales and marketing and go to market, have to move with the customer and in fact, always be a bit ahead of them. And we saw you know, the fact that in-person nearly went away and the companies that more quickly launched hybrid sales and moved everyone to VC, they grew while others shrunk. And so there is this need for speed. At the same time, I think executives that succeed make sure it is sustainable, where they are making fact-based decisions grounded in a deep understanding of the customer and not making permanent decisions, but allowing changes that enable them to be flexible going forward. So not saying we're going to completely disband field sales, but let's experiment maybe with hybrid sales, which are a mix of both digital and field. So choosing that, that sustainable option. So sustainable speed would be the first piece. The second piece that I've, I've seen, and there's no one way to do this, but it's purpose. If I think about the best CMOs or the best chief commercial officers, I know what they stand for. I know that they are all about people development. I know that they, their sole purpose is to drive growth in the most innovative product lines. And I know what they stand for. And if I can pick that up, even in the interactions I have, their team members can, their customers can. And I think people are looking for their leaders just to know what they stand for. And so if I take a step back, I think it is executives that know how to move quickly in a fact-based way, but not rushed. So kind of speed and being rushed are not the same, sustainable, and then have a very clear purpose and stand for something. Those would be my, my two. Yeah. Do you have a third? I mean, like we were not going to hold you, hold it against you. <laughs> I think those are the two most important. I'm going to stick with those. So I agree with the, the purpose piece, right? Because and I'll speak for my own executive journey, right? Like the longer I, I'm in this role, the more I feel like slowing down just to speed up. But the more I feel like I really have to be extremely clear about my values and what I'm going to tolerate and what I'm not going to tolerate yeah. because my entire team is taking direction from that. And the people that I'm fortunate enough to like help also need that, that type of guidance, right? And so I just wish that I would have been educated on this or exposed to this much earlier, but you kind of have to be in the seat to actually understand what it's all about and where do you, where do you take it? And I would also say that these to the aspiring executives or maybe like the newer executives that like once you come in to the fold, just know that, that the level of responsibility you're going to be given is going to be directly proportional to the level of other executives that you can support. 
whether it is emotionally or it's like through on different projects and stuff, but understanding and helping and connecting with other executives at different levels and just making sure that they feel that they're they can count on you is a really important part. And it takes skill, right? Because everybody says, hey, partner with me, Liz, like partner with me, right? And then they actually have to do it. And then when you actually have to do it, then you're like, wait, I didn't like that person anymore. And then it's really hard, right? And so so I love to like break these things down for, for our audience because I feel like these things are important and we don't talk much about them. But at least like this is like definitely one of my personal rules that, uh, around reviewing and serving and spending much, much time with a lot of executives that the level of executive you'll become is the level of executives, other executives you can support. Like quite frankly, like I love that. I have a third one now. Okay, perfect. So I had said each executive has to clearly define their purpose, but I'm actually going to assert that one of the pillars of their purpose has to be people. And it's not only the other executives they support, it has to be their team. Gone are the days of the executive who people say, they're really smart, but I didn't feel supported. Or they're really smart, but I don't really like them. I, I don't think you can really be that executive anymore and retain talent in the environment that we are in. Your comment really sparked the fact that, yeah, now more than ever before, people development, real care for people across the organization, and not just transactional. It's not that I just want to partner with you on a project. It's like, I care about you as a person. I care about your role in this organization. I care about your growth. That has to be part of it. Yep, totally. Now, let's talk about the, the next step of journey because I'm excited. I'm, I'm always excited with people that have some observations around seeing how executives become super executives, like you said. And I love that you use that term because I use that term all the time. Because to me, that's the, that's the way to, to elaborate, to call that segment out, right? What are some of the things that you've seen that those executives that became super executives like did or what did the super executives do to still stay as a, outside of some of the stuff that you've already already shared, right? Yeah. And are there specifics that maybe are a little bit tactical that you can share with our, our, our folks that they can like internalize quickly? Yep, yeah, absolutely. On the speed piece, sustainable speed, tactically, executives that succeed heavily invest in primary research interviews. They deeply understand what their customers need, how those needs are evolving, and those are you know, communicated across the organization. They don't just live in market research on some PowerPoint slides. Everyone deeply knows them in their heart. And the reason this is so important is this allows you as an executive to say, I have the proof. We have to change and we have to change now because it is unacceptable to our customers if we do not. The other piece is that, again, executives that I've seen excel and become super executives, which I agree. I love that term are able to move with speed because they have focus. So they do not come in with a list of here are our 30 initiatives. In the next three months, we want to do two things and we are going to do them well. And here is our aspiration. And they cut through the noise and link to that. They reprioritize their team's time. I can't tell you how many VPs or managers or directors that I talk to that say, I'm overwhelmed. I move from meeting to meeting to meeting. I move from project to project to project. I personally have no idea how to prioritize my time. And that's a fault of leadership. Their leadership team has clearly not said, this is number one priority, this is number two, and all else doesn't matter. And by the way, you have the freedom to take all that stuff that doesn't matter off your calendar. I think executives need to be enablers of efficient calendar management because people are drowning in Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting or whatever your platform of choice is. Yep. And that, again, executives that succeed provide that clarity of, of direction. 
well said. And at least from what I have learned from just speaking with like other, we were just blessed to have a lot of senior execs on this podcast, right? Is they also have to like figure out how they're going to support the CEO or the company's vision, right? And again, it's really hard because you actually have to stretch yourself to fit into this massive, massive vision and massive, massive opportunity out there that the business is trying to do. And and I feel like as you were graduating through the different levels of being an executive, right, like the ability to take a bite out of a much, much, much bigger pie is something that you have to learn because you ultimately have to go survive and support, right? And support maybe yep. the, the more focused word that that is. Uh, is. But it is also survival. I will say this, like at any given point in time when the business iterates itself, right? Because like when it goes from a billion to two billion to like 20 billion to like 40 billion, right? Like there's a shifts that are happening. And so people have to grow. Sometimes I, I feel like execs become super execs and then they get a little stagnant, right? And then, and then you can't do that because things will just feel slower and slower, but you have to believe that the machine is growing faster and faster, right? And it's this realization that really needs to sink in that takes time. And I'm just giving you the Cliff Nord version of like stuff yeah. so that people that are in the audience can just take this and say, look, the mental model is my day may feel like a vacation, but like my team is actually operating at full capacity and the results are being shown, right? And then much, but the larger company is doing this. And so it's just these concentric circle wins that you have to keep on going for. I love that. I'm going to use an example of a head of supply chain or a head of operations very specifically because... I think you will be hard pressed to find a company out there in the B2B space who doesn't have digital or analytics in the CEO's list of top priorities. Yep. yep. And again, my focus is on commercial, but in that, you know, I, I do interact with kind of on the operations supply chain to some extent. And what I have observed is that heads of supply chains, heads of operation can sometimes feel left out of this commercial push to launch e-commerce, to drive sales analytics, and they're trying to find their role in this growth agenda. And again, the most successful individuals in the COO, head of supply chain role, and again, I'm just using this as a targeted example, are able to say, hey, digitization and analytics actually help improve my function as well. And not only that, if e-commerce is the way of the future, Yes. Well, they're incredibly high customer demands for product availability. They need to see it on the site. Yes. And that's a tricky thing to do. They need to have it delivered in you know, 24 hours or less. That impacts my area. So they find their spot and their way to drive impact in the broader vision where it might not seem obvious. Again, I think that's a really important piece linked to what you said. We can't have executives end that feel disconnected from the broader vision and I think in today's day and age, when it's mostly digital and analytics, no one should. Everyone has a role to play in that. I love that you said that because I was on the phone with another executive. And the latest trend, at least that I'm, I'm observing, is analytics teams have adoption teams. And they are going out there and helping people realize the solutions to the problems versus previously analytics teams would say, here's a report, here's a dashboard, here's a yeah. link, rock and roll, right? So kudos to the ops and the analytics leaders out there for realizing that if they want the capability built in a business, then they need to do the last mile delivery, as we call it, right? Or in supply chain, I guess it's called LTL, right? And uh, <laughs> to, to actually like literally deliver this experience and really bring the company along with you. So I couldn't agree more with you on what you just said. I have seen in a lot of organizations 
this push again, last mile delivery. I actually love that, but also this role of customer insights, analytics becoming conveners and less so kind of data and report producers and more so they catalyze the process of getting insights, of developing the analytical solutions, but they build it with the people that will use it. So if I'm building a great churn predictor sales tool, for example, I don't build it in a back room. I have sales team members as part of it. My sales team members then become the voices and champions of it. So I think we are seeing this wave of these previous more back office roles, if that's the right term, having to come to the forefront, because if not all of their great work literally just collects dust. This is way more than I thought I would get out of this podcast, but it's fantastic. And I really feel, <laughs> hope that like people are taking these notes because there's mental nuggets that people can take and apply them, right? Now, let's talk about like best practices and just knowledge development, right? Like your guidance of that. I mean, we know McKinsey is like a very, very leading edge company, right? But you also produce a lot, right? We all know that, right? And so what's your guidance? My guidance in terms of executives creating content or sorting through what content you want to read? I would say executives grabbing content from the right places and then consuming it. Yep. Another good and tricky question. I will share what works for me as one one data point. I have a few trusted sources. I do enjoy selfishly. I think McKinsey puts out great content. That is a trusted source a lot for me, especially as I look at my colleagues who are deep in certain industries, kind of learning from them and trends elsewhere. I work in B2B. So my colleagues, for example, that do research on consumer trends, it's incredibly important to me because I know B2B will be kind of closely behind. I also have some trusted data sources when it comes to my family. I mentioned that's kind of the most important thing to me and who I am. There's a woman named Emily Oster, and I know I'm probably butchering her last name, but she puts out these incredibly fact-based data-driven, and again, I love numbers, about, you know, making strategic choices about how to raise your children and build a family. And that is a trusted source for me. So I've called down to kind of less than five trusted sources, and those are my go-tos. I've also positioned myself among my friend group at McKinsey as a sharer of content. So when I come across something interesting, I share it with others. And because I've started that practices, others share interesting stuff with me as well. And so maybe if I have my five trusted sources that I go to independently, my sixth one are peers and friends who say, hey, Liz would be interested in this. So I have my own curation engine happening in the background. Super. So I know you talked about Emily Oster. We'll definitely tag her. All right. As we look to wrap the podcast up, by the way, this has been fantastic spending time with you. Are there two or three other executives in go-to-market or data science that you recommend we invite to the show? Absolutely. So there are two that I I think would be incredibly, incredibly helpful. So there's a a senior partner at McKinsey, an individual named Arun Arora, who spends all of his time thinking about data-driven route-to-market decisions and is a real expert on the topic of e-commerce. Everything from how do you build it to how do you gain adoption? I think based on all the trends that I had shared around e-commerce being the most important, most efficient channel of the future, he would be incredibly helpful to talk to. The other colleague that I think would be very interesting would be Jennifer Stanley, who's another partner in our marketing sales practice and who works in a different set of industries than I do. So she's a deep expert in go-to-market, but is looking at it with the lens of the medical industry or more the tech industry. And I will be coming in with with more experience in some of the more traditional B2B industries. So she'd also, I think, provide an interesting perspective on some of the topics we discussed. Super. 
Would it be okay for people to connect with you post this podcast if they have any questions? And if so, sure, absolutely. is there a way that you would recommend they do that? Email is the easiest. I need to personally get better at responding to LinkedIn messages, but I'd say LinkedIn or email are the best too. Perfect. And I always make this public service announcement that if you're going to hit up an executive on this podcast, please be specific so that they can actually help you, right? Like when you say vague stuff, then it's just, this is very hard for execs to help. So for the executives that are listening to this, if you want to reach out to Liz, are there any closing thoughts that you have for us as we wrap this thing up? I love that you are talking about the important topic of go to market. I think it's really tough. It's really complex. It is not as fun and interesting as AI right now. It's not as fun and interesting as some other digital analytics topics, but it is at the heart of how organizations need to sell. It's at the heart of how they market. And I am just honored to have had the chance to chat with you. And I am so happy that you are again, bringing these issues to executives across the globe to be able to kind of highlight the prominence of it. So thank you for that. Well, super. Well, we thoroughly enjoyed our time with you and best of luck on your journey. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 